Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Leafy green vines draped the arbors, and the grapes were ready to drop. Esperanza was six years old and loved to walk with her papa through the winding rows, gazing up at him and watching his eyes dance with love for the land. Astute listeners will recognize those words from the opening passage of Esperanza Rising, the YA novel by Pam Munoz Ryan. The book has won more than a dozen honors, including a Pura Belpre medal and a Willa Cather Award. Pam's most recent novel for middle graders, Echo, is a New York Times bestseller, a Newbery Honor winner, and a recipient of the Kirkus Prize, among several other honors. It took us some doing, but I'm happy to say that we have Pam in the studio, along with her fearless editor, Tracy Mack. Welcome, Pam and Tracy. It's lovely to have you both with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Pam, I think often about your experience as an early childhood teacher Mm -hmm. and growing up in California, you talked about how you played as a child and dramatic play and the importance of that. So I wanted to start with that. How does that help a child develop his or her imagination? Well, dramatic play is scripting basically a form of writing at the very basic level. I mean, if you listen to young children play, especially unattended without electronics or television, they're often assigning roles. They're creating dialogue. You'll hear them say, now you say this, and then I'll say that, and then you go out and you come in, and then I will save you. They create angst. They make an ending. And really, dramatic play is writing at its most basic level. They are creating story and they're learning how to understand the concept of story, what stories are exciting and what stories are boring and how you need to fix them to make them more exciting. So I think that, I think dramatic play, for me at least, and then played a huge role in my developing imagination and my development as a writer. You've written more than 40 books. You are a fiction writer. Why is fiction and why is literature so important for children, especially at a time when nonfiction is emphasized. What, what does this add to our lives? I also write nonfiction, but, and I've done concept books and nonfiction um, and biography. So I'm, I'm a little bit all over the place, but I, I, my love is fiction and historical fiction. I love magical realism. And I've, uh, what I found, um, I found myself writing for the age I was when books made the most profound difference in my life and often writing the types of books, adventure, fiction, historical fiction. So the types of books that I loved at a certain age, that sort of middle school age when really books really sort of saved me. So, I mean, certainly they're a form of escapism, but I think they're also... Um, you know, a, a way of like creating, I think they were, fiction was a way for me to create my own myth. And what was it like where you grew up? I mean, why did you need to be saved by books? 
Well, um, my family moved across town when I, the summer before fifth grade. And when I moved, I suddenly became the new kid on the block, the new kid at school with a group of children who'd gone to school from the time they were in kindergarten for the most part. And I, I didn't fit in. It, it was just an awkward time for me, getting ready to go into middle school. And I discovered the, the small branch library near my house and started writing there, filling up my bike basket full of books, writing back. And so, uh, and, and then, you know, making the trip again, even sometimes in just only a few days. So I think that at that time of my life, when I was really struggling socially, I, I, was, I was coping through the stories that I read. Let's fast forward here to Echo, which is your most recent Mm -hmm. book with Scholastic, and talk a little bit about that. We have Tracy here with us, your editor, so maybe the two of you can talk about the genesis of this book and some of the stories behind it. Well, it's really fun to have my editor, Tracy Mack, here. I think Mm -hmm. Echo was our 16th book together, Mm -hmm. and so we've been doing this for about 20 years Mm -hmm. now together. And Echo wasn't the book I set out to write. I set out to write another story. I was researching the first successful desegregation case in the United States, Roberto Alvarez versus the trustees of the Lemon Grove School District. Lemon Grove is a community east of San Diego. I live in the San Diego area. So I was at this historical society researching this particular case that happened in 1931. And the wonderful docent had pulled all the information for me and had it all laid out in this little historical society house and also had yearbooks from that year so that I could see pictures of children. Uh And I was flipping through these yearbooks and here was a picture, a photograph of an integrated photograph of children sitting on the steps of Lemon Grove Elementary, each of them holding up a harmonica. And when I saw the photograph, I asked her, I said, what, what is this? And she goes, oh, well, that was before all the segregation issues came up. Um, that was the year before. Um, that was our elementary school harmonica band. You know, all the schools had them back in the 20s and 30s during the big harmonica band movement in the United States. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, and I, I, I said, the, the what? You know, and she says, oh, sure. You know, and so she kind of elaborated and um. I gathered all the research that I'd come for and went home and just prayed that it was true and uh, went home and began researching and it was true. And not only were there over 2000 elementary school harmonica bands in the United States between the 1920s and 1940s, there was also Albert Hoxie's famous, then famous uh, 60 member boy band, the Philadelphia Harmonica Wizards that played for Charles Lindbergh and for three presidents. And so, you know, here, so now I had the premises for two stories. I began to think about this elementary school harmonica band with these children that may have been segregated. Mm -hmm. And then I had um, Hoxie's band in Philadelphia that was all boys, primarily orphans. So I began to wonder, well, what if one harmonica had traveled from the boy band to California to this elementary school band and who had had the same harmonica before it came to Philadelphia, and that led me to the Honer Harmonica Company in Trossingen, Germany. And it was there in the factory that I discovered that there used to be boy apprentices that worked in the Honer Harmonica factory the year that Hitler became chancellor. And so now the, the idea for three stories began to take hold. Wow. And I'll let Tracy elaborate <laughs> yeah. a little. Well, I love that it started out as as a completely different story. And I remember after you finished The Dreamer thinking, well, where will we go next? You know, (laughs) and I love how Pam writes about issues of social justice. And I think that 
uh, you do a remarkable job of always presenting both sides of a story and being so objective and letting the reader decide, you know, what what is right. And that was part of what drew you mm-hmm. to the Lemon Grove story. But then once you arrived at this, we knew there was no turning back from that story. <laughs> and what we needed from that story, we took from that story and wove it right. in. So it right. didn't go away. It just got woven into Ivy's story in Echo. But I think what was so amazing was we started with this frame. And the more we talked about it, the more we just kept upping the ante. And it was just like, well, what about this? Well, what about this? And then Pam realized, well, we need a backstory for the harmonica itself. So that was kind of the fourth story. And and the frame kept growing. <laughs> bigger and bigger, and it felt like we were just challenging each other. And I think one of the things that's sort of neat is the fairy tale section that bookends the novel is quite short, but it probably took the most time Absolutely. to figure out. And right. I can remember we would go for walks, each of us, family right. California and me, where I live in Massachusetts, right? And we were on the phone and we would walk and talk for hours, just brainstorming, well, what about this and what about that? Because it needed to be fantastical, but it needed to be credible. And Pam really made a study of the fairy tale mm-hmm. form and was very, very... Well, it was so different from writing a regular narrative because a fairy tale, you know, I was reading a lot of Philip Pullman and he describes a fairy tale as a tome lit clean. There's no backstory. There's, and you, um, in fairy tales, you make judgments. You say she was a mean and selfish witch. And in the United States, when you're writing in a, in a regular narrative, it would be why was she mean and why was she selfish? And you <laughs> would want to know all of the the reasoning behind it. But um, in the fairy tale, the whole genre is it's a completely different mindset in some ways liberating, but in other ways, very difficult to, to adhere to. So, you know, I wanted to give the harmonica, I wanted to imbue it with some sort of magic. And so given that it was going to Trossing in Germany first, there I was in the Black Forest and there I was with Grimm's, you know, right, and so right. it all sort of, it began to come together that maybe a fairy tale, would, it, lent it, it lent itself to the story. But whether or not it could work. Right. Because of course <laughs> it had to work. Says the <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> Ultimately um, relied on a single detail that Pam discovered while visiting the factory, which we can't reveal because it's a complete spoiler if you haven't read the book. <laughs> but once Pam made that discovery, everything fell into place, Right. Well, that sounds easy. But <laughs> that sounds a lot easier than it really was. But yes, basically, yes, that's it in a nutshell. Did you call Tracy from Germany? Um, I think I might. I, yeah, I, I, I might have emailed her from <laughs> Germany. I I needed a way. I had already had an idea for the fairy tale and the spell that needed to be broken. But when I went to Germany, I didn't know how I was going to break the spell until I went to the factory and. When I went, they have a wonderful museum there that's quite extensive, and it was there in the museum that I discovered the um, the sort of quintessential way to break the spell from the fairy tale. That is so cool. So when you're on your walks, is the magical world much more real to you than what's in front of you? Well, I think I I think all of our conversations we act very matter of fact about. The fiction that we're, we're talking about. Even today, we went to lunch and we're, if anybody had overheard us, I'm not quite sure what they would have made of our conversation because we're really talking about the characters in the story. We're, uh-huh. Except that we're talking like with utter sincerity about people that don't exist. Right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. But, and how do these characters take shape in your mind? 
Oh, well, I would say that, you know, every character is different. Mm -hmm. Some characters walk into a room, sit down, and they are self-actualized. And Mm -hmm. they're easy to write about. They're strong. Marta in Esperanza Rising was that way to the point where I had to temper her because (laughs) she just came so fully realized. And then other characters just, you know, they develop sort of painfully slow. Mm -hmm. And it, it just depends. And it's so fun. I love, you know, the period details that you add for each character. I mean, that must just entail, is that library and traveling? Of course, library, research, you know, that's, that is the fun part, but it's also can be the burdensome part, but Mm -hmm. also the safe part because you, it's easy to stay in the research um, (laughs) and, and move into the writing, but really you never really stop doing research. It's sort of like you have all of this information and it's just sort of off to the side. It's like a, a recipe, Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, but you have to keep referring to it. And it's the same with the research. You have to keep going back and mm-hmm. referring to it over and over and over again before you can bake the cake. Yeah. I think it's a testament to how well you absorb and integrate your research because you don't feel that in the characters, right? You don't feel the research imposed upon them. They just feel as though they yes. can step off the page and into your living room. And I think that is one of the most distinguishing things about Pam's work, that these characters always feel fully fleshed, three-dimensional and wholly real, like they're your mother, cousin, friend, neighbor. And so memorable. I have yeah, a you. young colleague who I mentioned I was going to uh-huh. talk with you, and she said Esperanza Rising was her favorite book as oh. a kid. She did a report on it. Oh, nice. So <laughs> she wondered, what do you hear from young fans when you go to schools and from children uh-huh. about your books? What are some of, some of the fun stories kids tell you, your readers? Well, I, I mean, I, I do receive a lot of letters, and um, I mean, that's really one of the best parts of doing what I do, because for the most part, most of my work is pretty solitary. At, right. I mean, it's n- not... Except for Tracy here. <laughs> well, right. But, Inserting but myself at every yeah, opportunity. We often, we could go months sometimes yeah. without talking. Mm-hmm. So, the, I mean, it's really nice to stay in touch with readers, to hear from them and hear how much the book has meant to them. And, and it's always really wonderful to hear from Latino readers who tell me how much the story means to them and their family and how they connected to it, but it's also as important, sometimes more important to hear from non-Latino readers who tell me that they didn't know about this time period or they didn't know the thing about the things that are in the book. So that's equally as rewarding. I would love for you to tell our listeners about your grandmother who was an inspiration for this story. Well, my grandmother, Esperanza Ortega, was the inspiration for the story. The book parallels her immigration journey very closely, although this is definitely a fictionalized account. Mm -hmm. But she was born in a ranch in Aguascalientes, Mexico. Um, The name of the ranch was different than the name of the ranch in the book. A series of circumstances did happen, and she was forced to immigrate. And ended up into Georgia Farms in the camp that is in the book. Right. Yeah, my mother was born in the camp that is depicted in the book. On my mother's birth certificate, um, we're on the line that is reserved for the name of a hospital are the words to Georgia Farms. Oh my goodness. Interesting tidbit about that story. It was submitted to me as a picture book called Zigzag Rose. Uh-huh. And at that point, Pam and I had worked together on Writing Freedom Freedom and and Amelia Amelia and Eleanor Go for a Ride. And Writing Freedom was also submitted to me by Pam's agent, Kendra Marcus, at Bookstop Literary. That was my first encounter with Pam's work. And it was a picture book called One-Eyed Charlie about Charlie Parkhurst, who was the first woman to vote in the state of California, (laughs) dressed as a man. And... um, (laughs) 
it was fascinating, but it it was bursting the seams of a picture book form. There was just too much rich yeah. material there. And so I asked her if she would consider turning it into a novel. And <laughs> she very boldly said, or bravely said yes. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that actually a lot of Pam's novels began as picture books, including The Dreamer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. I think maybe initially I, maybe I, s- I often see it in my mind as, as, as if I'm watching a movie. So when I'm envisioning a story or a book, it's almost as if I can see the chronology or as if I'm watching it. So I think um, when I see that sort of encapsulated form, to me, it seems, well, it'd be easy to put it in a picture book format, <laughs> but it often, it often grows well past that. You got a great review for Echo in the New York Times. Right. That was wonderful. Yes. Yes. And they talked about the virtues of your characters and what you like to emphasize, Mm -hmm. bravery, kindness, tolerance, as you alluded to, Tracy. Mm -hmm. I wonder what other values matter to you or do you see in your literature and even as differing from how children are growing up today? Well, first of all, I, I don't necessarily consciously set out to you know, put a series of values in a particular story. Um, I think that comes, the, I'm very concerned about social justice issues, and I certainly want to present them in a fair way, uh, in a way that can be discussed. My most ardent goal when I sit down to write a book is that I want the reader to turn the page. And I'm far more focused on that. Now, what comes from me and my history and my spirit and my editor's direction is all put on top of me wanting the reader to want to turn the page. Mm, So I'm not quite... I'm not quite sure. Certainly, there's a certain verity that I want. I want... I'm concerned about the reader um, hearing truth on some level, but I don't really set out to hit them over the head with it. Right. I think it's interesting. We don't have conversations so much about values, but we talk a lot about theme. Mm -hmm. And that is something Mm -hmm. that I'm constantly asking Pam about. Okay, this is the story. So the plot, this is what you want to say, but what do you want to say? What are you exploring here? And I think in Echo, there were so many themes that that we wanted to mine. Pam has a whole whiteboard of themes. And I think the main one being music as a language of connection mm-hmm. and a language of connection that surpasses distinctions of all kinds, gender, race, ethnicity, religion, everything. And so it's a book that is very much of its time. It spans all of the World War II period, the rise of Hitler, the depression, the beginning of World War II, but it's, it's timeless because of this theme of music and, and music as a language of connection. And I think that there were many, many other themes and inherent in that is, is Pam's own worldview, which is, I think where you're feeling this sense of values mm-hmm. being important, but really that's just coming out of the themes that we're mining mm-hmm. in each of them. It was, you know, when I realized I had these three characters for Echo, Friedrich and Mike and Ivy, I realized that they were going to be living during some of the most dark and challenging times in history. Friedrich during Hitler's Germany, Mike during the Great Depression, Ivy Maria during a period of segregation. And really that was that whole idea 
was what, how, what could I do for them to give them the courage and the hope to carry on? And given the harmonica that would travel between them, it had to be music. And so this universal language of music became one of the, the themes that, that runs through the story. And of course, then that led to the backstory and how would we get the magic in, into the story. And back to the whiteboard, the book was just so big that I, and I don't usually do this for my novels, so right. I may keep doing it. Um, <laughs> I got a huge whiteboard, seven feet long and four feet tall and put it in my office and divided it up. And for each story, I printed out the months of that particular story, the actual months, and kept track of all the instances and then all the leitmotifs, all the recurring themes, people, places, things, words, because of the echo of the book. Yes, I want, we wanted yes. certain words to occur in every single story certain phrases, some of them obvious and some of them very subliminal, that unless I told you that that word was in every single story, you would, you probably wouldn't have picked up on it. So keeping track of all that was, I needed the big visual. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, your interest in social justice, I'm wondering if that comes out of your mother's experiences. My grandmother's your journey. Grandmother yes. and, then your, and then your mother being born here or right. no? Well, I'm not exactly sure about that. I I, I suppose on some level mm-hmm. that, that that might be true. I mean, I certainly dealt with some social issues growing up, uh, social justice issues growing up, hearing things from my aunts and my uncles. But I I mean, I'm as equally drawn, you know, to stories about strong women and whimsy and as I am to the so, to social justice issues mm-hmm. as well. Do you want to elaborate on that? I think The thing that ties all of your work together is a sense of, I think everything that Pam does is different, but there's this inherent Pam Ryan feel (laughs) to a book (laughs) that is not just based in social justice, but I do think that it's everything we've been saying from these very real characters Mm -hmm. that that leap off the page. but, But I think what deepens it is this profound exploration of theme. When Pam explores something, it's not on the surface. You know, she's digging deep and really trying to get at the heart of something in every story that she writes from When Marion Sang, which also Mm -hmm. has themes of social justice, Mm -hmm. but themes of music. I think there are a lot of patterns if you look at the whole backlist, right? The whole beautiful body of work. That's the magic. That's That's the magic. magic. That's something we can't quantify right here. (laughs) But this was such a lovely exploration. And I would love for you to read A passage from Echo right here, if you could. This is from Friedrich's story, and he's having lunch by himself, and he is playing his harmonica, and he... um, he realizes that that it's not just him that is playing his harmonica. He looked around. There was no one about. He dropped his arms, yet the music continued. The lilt was slow, resonant, and haunting. One moment, the notes sounded as if they came from a flute. The next, a clarinet. In the low notes, he could hear the cello. Friedrich had never heard playing like this before. He listened, mesmerized, his eyes and ears searching to determine the origin of the sound. They settled on an open window on the uppermost floor of the warehouse across the field. He sucked in his breath. The graveyard. Friedrich had never been there, but he'd heard all the tales. It's where machines go to die. Strange things happen in the shadows. There are glimmers and apparitions. Some people go up and never come down. Friedrich hesitated, but the song was so compelling, so curious. How frightening could it be? Besides, they were only rumors. 
He gathered his lunch, walked to the entrance, and left his pail on the threshold. Surely someone who made such music could not be a danger to him. He opened the heavy door and stepped inside the foyer. The music came from far above. Slowly, he climbed the dim stairwell. At the top floor, Friedrich pushed open a door and entered a cavernous room. Floor-to-ceiling arched windows ran down either side, but only a few needle-like gleams of light penetrated the years of grime on the glass, leaving the room in shadows. Old machines, bulky figures of steel and iron filled the space. On the ceiling, dozens of wheels had been suspended, and below them, on the floor or attached to tables, were their counterparts, all the elements of a once-elaborate pulley system. The leather belts, now disconnected and useless, dangled from the rafters like black snakes. It's where machines go to die. Beautiful. Thanks again to Pam Munoz-Ryan and Tracy Mack for joining us today. For this episode's notes and links, go to scholasticreads.com. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possibility.